Good afternoon and happy December 1. I'm Dr. James Smith Jr. and welcome to The Dr. James Show. Looking forward to an, another fabulous, fun, quick hour, informational and I trust transformational. Shannon, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I don't know, I'm excited about to this week's show is I'm, I'm excited every week and I, I it, it just everything keeps getting better and better um but wine pairing on last week's show and oh, about you are in rare form you are in rare form <laughs> listen don't threaten me with a good time is what I'm saying Dr. James I'm really excited today and you know what for those of you who joined us last week thank you so much um we're so grateful. Those of you who are joining, joining us for the first time this week, we're thankful as well. Uh, don't be shy today, folks, okay? December 1, we're, we're gearing up towards the end of the year. Uh, it's the start of a new month, so don't be shy. Get your questions. Put those comments in the chat room. We're going to do our best to cover them today with our guest. I know this hour is going to fly by as usual. I always leave wanting more, always, and I have... I, I'm, I think I'm correct when I say I think I'm going to feel the same way again this week, Dr. James. You won't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. Any any orders or thoughts for the folks in the chat room? Just don't be shy. Yeah. This is an opportunity. I feel every week we get an opportunity to ask questions and have an hour uninterrupted with subject matter experts. So just lean in, ask those questions, make those comments. Um, I just, you know, it's a great opportunity. So let's make sure we maximize on it. We will, we will. And it's it's ironic that our guest who has his own show on RVN TV once had me on to interview me behind the numbers. And I get a chance to switch it up a little bit and ask the questions. And I have help because I have you. So let's dive in, let's dive in. Our guest today is a valuation expert. And we're going to find out what that means. He's a best-selling author. He wrote the book, The New ROI, which stands, on, stands for Return on Individual. He's a speaker. He's a go-giver. And like I said earlier, he's the host of Behind the Numbers, which comes on RVN TV. He's a phenomenal person. I've had a chance to get to know him this year. And he's another one of my COVID blessings. I look forward to getting him, getting to know him even more as we continue on this journey called post 2020. But let's bring on Dave Bookbinder. Dave, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dr. James, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sounds like I missed you by a week. Uh, last week sounds like it must've been fun with the wine. Dave, we had the Pyramid Club sommelier with Rachel, the general manager is also a Psalm. And we had the, uh, the top chef, world-class chef, who's the chef there. And he taught us how to brine a turkey and some other tips around making our, our food and our Thanksgiving experience pretty good. That's so good stuff. Have Pyramid. Recording, check it out on the YouTube channel. It's there, Quick Sell. Yep. But how are you? How are you these days? What's happening in your life? I'm doing good. As I tell people, every day is Tuesday. So oh. that's the way it's felt since March. <laughs> All right. I don't know well, if it's the same... I don't know if it's same stuff, different day, or, or same day, different stuff. Well, you're talking to a motivational speaker here, so you know I, I offer a different 
thought process around same stuff, different day, because I'm moving to make it different, make it new, make it big, but we're not going to go there. Turn me down, mm -hmm. turn you up. Valuation expert. Hashtag, what's that? <laughs> what's a valuation expert? Well, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell that, that said, if you do something for 10,000 hours, you're considered an expert. So I've been at this valuation consulting game for quite some time now. So I think that's where you got the, the expert moniker. But um, the cool thing is if anybody, well, I can't imagine anybody who hasn't seen Shark Tank now, I think they're in season 12. Sure. Um, Shark Tank made the word valuation somewhat sexy by bringing it into our living rooms. And for a lot of folks who didn't know that that word really even existed, uh, Shark Tank shone a light on it. Uh, but there's a lot of reasons why companies need uh, valuation besides just for their, the reasons that you see on Shark Tank. It's more than just you know, raising venture capital. Uh, it could be for estate planning purposes. Uh, it could be to attract and retain, retain talent by issuing stock options. It could be strategic planning, acquisitions, a whole host of reasons. And uh, that's what I've been doing. I've been helping literally thousands of companies over my career and valuing their businesses and their intellectual property or intangible assets. Good stuff, good stuff. When did this love of valuation start? For me, when I was in first, second, third grade, I would get good grades on my citizenship and the subject matter, but the teacher would always say, sit down, James Smith, you're always running your mouth. You're always running your mouth. Well, it's no surprise that 40, 50 years later, I'm still running my mouth now as a professional speaker. When did you, have your first encounter, first experience. So how did you get into this field of valuation and numbers? Yeah, there's a couple of different questions there. I'll tell you how I got into it, but I think the, the love for it didn't come until much later. Um, so I was working at the IRS during the day while I was going to MBA school at night and uh, working on a degree in finance and uh, exploring the job boards and the job market. And I landed on an opportunity with this valuation consulting firm uh, somewhere in Princeton. And never heard of the firm, didn't, again, didn't know the name of a valuation consulting firm, but the, the description of the position sounded an awful lot like what we were learning in school, and it sounded really intriguing. So uh, threw my hat into the ring, I went through the interview process and landed the job. And it, that's when I started to cut my teeth in the valuation field, but it, that was early in my career and uh, felt that I needed to explore other things. So I made a few other moves and tried some other different things in investment banking and inside industry. And it's like you don't know what you got till it's gone. Uh, while not in valuation, I realized, you know what, I, I really kind of missed that. So I jumped back in um, and then at that point realized that it was the most intellectually gratifying work that I'd been doing and started to pursue the professional designations for the field. What, what made it intellectually gratifying? What aspect of it that really made you like, hmm, I like this? Well, I, I fancied myself as someone who was an investment manager. That's what I was thinking I was going to do when I got out of uh, grad school, uh, run money and make investments in portfolios and things like that. And understanding the value of the businesses that would comprise my portfolio was kind of where I was interested in and, and sounded like fun. It, it was enjoyable for me. And this gave me the opportunity to really apply those skills in, in valuing companies. Well, you and I have a lot in common, myriad things. We both went to Temple. We both love our Philadelphia sports teams. We work with CFOs, we work with CEOs. Although you work with more private equity folks and trusted advisors, what, what's your goal when you're working with them? 
I, I get the the numbers and the analytical side, but something tells me there's a people side there as well. Hence, behind the numbers, ROI, something tells me there's more to the people side as well. Yeah, there is, man. There's a lot to unpack in that question. I don't know if you realized that when you asked it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I think the first part of the question was uh, something along the lines, what do I try to achieve in, in the, the client relationships? And yes. it's always about trying to add value. Um, I, I, I've written and spoken on the topic that I think nobody's woken up tomorrow and said, I want to know what my business is worth or what my IP is worth. And I'm willing to spend you know, X dollars to actually get the right answer. Um, most of the time, someone is brought into evaluation assignment because someone else has told them they needed to do it. Um, so, for example, maybe a company is com uh, completing a, an audit for their financial statements and their accountant will tell them, hey, I see you did an acquisition last quarter. You need to value the IP assets. Or if they're doing an estate planning exercise, the attorney may say, well, we need to get the stock valued. So normally folks aren't thinking eagerly about pursuing evaluation. So I try to make the experience different and try and add as much value inside our, our process as I can so that they really see that it is a worthwhile endeavor. Regarding the people aspect of it, man, that's a whole different topic. Um, yes. We're so, getting there. <laughs> We're going yeah. there. <laughs> so the, the people aspect is one of the intangible assets that I value throughout my career is human capital. And, and I want to be really clear here when we use the word or when I use the word human capital, that is not meant as some pejorative comment. Okay. Uh, I know there are a lot of folks who, who, get on their high horse about people not being assets and you know, human capital is, is a derogatory term. I, I use that term because it, it resonates in the finance community, right? Financial capital, intellectual capital, human capital, it's something that has resonance. And I personally never thought that the methods that our profession used to value people or human capital really told the whole story. So um, that, that's a, a, a soft intro into how the book got born, <laughs> if you'd like me to go down that path. Oh, go for it. Go for it. We can cross over. Yeah. Okay. So I've been a, a numbers guy for my entire career, right? For mm -hmm. about 30 years, like I said, and helping companies and valuing their assets, their businesses and so forth. Um, I was also a single dad for about a dozen years or so. And during that period of my life, I had the opportunity to work for some great people for whom I would walk through fire. And I had the opportunity to work for some other folks who not so much, uh, we roll their eyes and, and make a snarky remark. For example, if I had to go pick up a sick kid at daycare, you know, sure. must be must be nice to leave the office at three o'clock, <laughs> not even having any the slightest empathy for what um, I'd be going through that day and that night, and, and certainly making up my time. Um, but I, I, I started to understand what employee engagement meant and felt like because the ones that got it, I would walk through fire for them, mm. and the other ones again, maybe not so much. It's a different level of experience and, and relationship. Um, so anyway, the, the long story short is that um, I got inspired to write what was an article at the time to, to speak about how my profession values people, making the case that I don't think we do it the right way, but being careful not to throw stones at my profession, because these are our prescribed methodologies, sure. and being careful not to throw stones at the accounting world, because what everybody says is our most valuable asset doesn't live on a balance sheet. So I, I was trying to walk that fine line, and the wrote the article and uh, it started to get some traction and uh, folks encouraged me to continue writing about this topic and more people started to show up in my life and the like-minded people that were attracted to this each of the view that people are a company's most valuable asset but each of them may be in a different uh, role with a different 
side of the mountain that they were climbing, although we're all climbing the same mountain. So we wound up collaborating and I ultimately wound up collaborating with about 20 other thought leaders across North America. And at some point in mid, midstream in, in creating these articles realized I've got to have a repository where it all can live in one spot. Okay, well, that kind of feels like a book. So, so uh, the book was never something I set out to do. It was just kind of a, a labor of love, passion project that ultimately became a book. I love it. And I have a number of questions I'm going to ask regarding the book. But I mentioned before the last question that you and I have a lot in common. You also have some things in common with, with Shannon. Shannon, in her previous life, uh, played a key role in her organization's uh, employee engagement. Um, Shannon, why don't you come on out and talk a little bit about that and, and let us know what's going on in the chat room or if you have any questions based on what we've discussed so far. No, I just, um, I love employee engagement because I think that, um, and I'm sure you've heard this statement all through your career, is that people don't leave companies, they leave people. And if you've ever had a difficult manager, um, I appreciate you. Uh, we used to always say, that the greatest human need is that you feel appreciated. Um, are there some simple ways that you can share with our, our guests today that we can start implementing today, whether they are people manager or even coworker to coworker to let them know they're appreciated? It's the easiest, simplest, least expensive way to, to get somebody to buy in. It, it's a human element, right? People just want to know that they're valued and appreciated. And what better way than to say, hey, thanks for your effort on this. It, it meant a lot to me. Yeah. And what do you think is the biggest challenge that you've come across um, with regards to resistance um, with companies and organizations or, or managers um, for not implementing some type of culture or rewards and recognition system? Yeah, so I, I think some of it stems from what may, we may call it the old school mindset. Um, look, there are a lot of folks out there who think that their people are, or should just be grateful that they have a job and you're lucky to work here. And if you don't wanna be here, you know, get out and you can find somebody else real fast. Um, there's that mindset. Uh, there's another mindset of, yeah, I see that other companies are doing this and maybe I'll do certain things just to be competitive, but why should I bother? And in, in naming the book, it was kind of a strategic thing to, to call it the new ROI, return on individuals, because in, in the finance community, ROI, return on investment has a certain resonance and we expect a return on any investment that we make. And if you really believe that people are your company's most valuable asset, making the returns in those or making those investments in those people will generate returns. So when you talk about employee engagement, I'm sure Shannon, you know the stats, right? Gallup every year publishes their, their Q12 report and every year it's about 30%, meaning that one out of every three people or three out of every 10 people are engaged at work. So the way I like to think about it, the analogy I use is think about your, your business as a lifeboat and you've got 10 people on that lifeboat. So there's three people in the front of the boat who are rowing eagerly to safety four of the people in the middle of the boat who are just kind of looking around watching the icebergs go by. And there's three in the back who are trying to sink you. So imagine if you can turn the dial on employee engagement and get those people to, to buy in just a little bit, right? Uh, what happens? The good stuff that comes out of employee engagement, that's where the, the magic of discretionary effort, the going above and beyond kicks in. Right. And I think, you know, companies need to invest more in 
having somebody take the charge or a department taking the charge that really are a voice of the people. Because I think that we find a lot of times in organizations is they have all these focus groups and not even necessarily the right people are in it, but even if they are, then they don't go anywhere other than pulling the data. You know, do you find there's a the, the executing that and, and really putting something in motion to help satisfy the people so you do get that engagement and, um, and that buy-in? Yeah, so I've talked to a number of um, CEOs and finance leaders, both for book one and for forthcoming book two, um, to get their stories. And there's a recurring theme in this whole concept here about driving employee engagement. Um, one, it has to be intentional. And it starts at the top, right? So the, the leader has to hand out, I'll call it the metaphorical corporate Kool-Aid to everybody else in the organization. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question about that because that's in the book, that Kool-Aid. I'm going <laughs> to talk to you about that. Okay. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting is it takes time, right? Because people, if, if you're making an organizational change and you've operated one way for the past X number of years, now all of a sudden you make an announcement, hey, we get it and we're going to start doing all the right things. A cynical employee is going to say, why should I believe you? You haven't done it so far. So they, you have to, as a leader, be consistent in, in your implementation. Uh, and you've got to have the, the long horizon in mind because it's going to take what I'm told between 18 months and 24 months before your people realize that it's actually being embedded into the DNA. So one, one company that I highlighted in, in the first book, um, they implemented some rules and um, I won't do any naughty bits, but he has a no a-hole policy and they, they've implemented it. They, they've actually enforced it. So imagine the first time uh, there's an announcement that so-and-so has been terminated because they violated our, our policy around decency and the way we treat each other. Wow. Now you got their attention. Yeah. 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 Dan, thank you. Thank you. Dave, in your, the research I've done, it says that you collaborate with CFOs, CEOs, a number of folks in that, in that realm with certain scenarios, what type of scenarios or situations do you find yourself in when you're working with organizations or these chief thought leaders regarding the support and services you provide? Yeah, so that's uh, largely in the valuation community. As I mentioned, um, yeah, folks aren't waking up and thinking, I wanna get my business valued. Um, without somebody normally telling them they need to get it done. So it's those other trusted advisors. Uh, it's the accountants of the world, it's the attorneys. Uh, private equity, for instance, they do a lot of acquisitions. So they, they need to record the fair value of their intangible assets on financial statements. So that's a reason that triggers evaluation need in their world. So I'm collaborating with that, we'll call it the ecosystem uh, in the, the transactional space that drives needs for business valuation. All right, two L words. One is love and one is loathe. What do you love about what you do? Valuation and finances and return on individuals. Yeah. And, and well, what do you loathe about what you do? A combination of loathe and, and, and love. Let me start with the loathe part because I'm gonna get that out of the way. Um, and, and anybody who knows me and if my, my colleagues are watching or listening, they're gonna laugh and fall out of their chairs, but it, it's administrivia for me. Um, I, I really hate the, the administration part of our jobs. And if you're an accountant or attorney or anybody else who um, records, we'll call it billable time um, in exchange for professional services rendered, and you've got to track your time and record it in time cards and things like that. And 
Um, that, that's just always been a, a source of uh, nuisance for me, just the administrative and the idea of trading hours for dollars, because I think we can add more value than the dollars that we're charging, but that's the way of tracking our time. So that, that's what I don't like. What I, what I love about what I do is I get to work with a lot of great people, uh, whether it's my colleagues, whether it's my clients, whether it's the people that refer the work into us uh, and all those folks that are in the ecosystem. Uh, every engagement is different. So although we're valuing businesses, there's a whole host of reasons. There's a whole host of industries. So there's always something to learn. And with regard to the people thing, as I mentioned, that, that was born out of a passion project and an idea that I think we as a, a society can do better in, in thinking about how we value our people, how we treat our people. And in, in my mind, if we're going to call them our most valuable asset, maybe they should live on a financial statement. And uh, let's inspire people to behave in a fashion that's consistent with that belief. So um, any opportunity I get to evangelize on that topic, I'm, I'm thrilled to do it too. So thank you. Dave, you know, I've done a lot of research on authenticity. That's, that's my sweet spot. Um, yeah. I'm going to ask you, because I had a chance to meet you in front of the camera and to connect behind the camera, getting to know Dave the man. How much of, of you shows up with these relationships, working with your clients, or, or what's your approach to bringing you, all of you, to your relationships with your yeah. clients? Yeah, so I, I really can't be anybody but me. Um, so I always bring it. I, I learned several years ago through working with a coach that um, what you really bring to any relationship is you. And, and Bob Berg and the Go-Giver talks about it. And uh, here, here's a cheap pop for you. Bob Berg is going to be a guest on Behind the Numbers coming up in another week or so. But uh, <laughs> authenticity, I, we all talk about authenticity, but what does it really mean? And it, it means, you know, if you have a sense of humor, show it a little bit. People do business with with people. It's, it's not about a name on a business card or the name on the side of a building and things like that. The, at the end of the day, they're working with you as a human being. So that, that's really important to show up, be you, be real. And uh, I think ultimately that's how you build a relationship just by being you. But let, let's stay with that because before I take any advice from any financial expert or financial advocate, we have to build some trust. What are your thoughts about building trust and perhaps even losing it? I know in the book, there is a chapter or two around building trust and what happens when the trust is gone. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so here I am quoting from the Go-Giver again, but people do business and refer business to people they know, like, and trust, right? Um, know and like are, are fairly straightforward and fairly easy to achieve, but trust is the hard one. Trust takes time. Trust means doing what you say you're going to do. It means following through and following up on any commitments and obligations that you make. It's about acting with integrity, right? People want to know, like you said, that they can trust you before they're going to hand over their relationships to you, their money to you, their, their most valued possessions, whatever that may be in their business and their personal lives. So yeah, the, the trust is, is absolutely imperative. And it's about operating with integrity, as they say, even when people aren't watching because your reputation precedes you and you can destroy trust in a blink of an eye, one stupid transgression and you can literally blow everything. Did you ever have a situation where that was the case? Either you fell out with the client or the client fell out with you or it just didn't go right. Did you have one of those horror stories? Yeah, never with me. I mean, I, I 
it's never been worth it, right? I've been working in situations where if I were of an evil mindset, I've had opportunity to, to play fast and loose and would never do that. I've got to sleep at night. I've got personal ethics. I've got a standard of conduct that I've got to adhere to in my profession. But um, I did have a client once that I thought we had a good trusting relationship. And we were, this was years ago, we'd done a lot of great work with them. And um, they asked us to do something for them and uh, sent them the, the engagement letter as requested based on everything we discussed. And um, the client put a red line through the number uh, that the, the fee would be and just cut it in half, signed it and sent it back as if, okay, you just had your fee cut. So we had a very candid conversation about that. That was really a violation of trust and sure. uh, had to fire that client. But uh, here's the, the fun part, actually came back and oh. was apologetic about that and explained that it wasn't the intention, want to keep moving forward. So, but when that happens and they come back, you've got to be wary, right? Once bitten, you know, you know what maybe their true colors are. Yeah. Lessons, lesson learned. Shannon, any questions or lesson learned out there from the chat room or question that you may have? Well, I have a multiple part question, um, but I have a quick question before we go into this because it does have multiple parts is um, you had mentioned that at one point you were a single dad for many years, especially in this current climate. Um, of women having to work from home and dad working from home and everyone managing. Do you feel that um, that season of your life helped you have a certain or different appreciation for what you can do and what we manage on a day-to-day -day basis? 100%, absolutely. Um, one of the, the tipping points for me in terms of inspiring me to actually starting put pen to paper was um, I'd walked back with a, uh, a female CFO uh, after having been greeted in their lobby area where there's a big sign out front that says, we value diversity, inclusion, and, you know, work-life flexibility. And we're walking back to her office and I was commenting on how it must be really great to work for an organization like this that values all those things. And she shuts the door and tells me, yeah, that's all BS. Um, they Ooh. talk a good game, but they don't really do it. And she then told me a story about uh, a recent um, department meeting where somebody asked a question about this flexible work schedule and if they had to go pick up a sick kid, uh, presumably they could work from home the rest of the day. And they were told, uh, no, we expect you to come back in after you take the kid to the doctor and we expect you to make up your time. And it was just really pedantic and counter to the whole idea of flexible work and, and caring about people. So yeah. yeah, big aha moment. And I, I think if you ask any of the folks that have ever been under my leadership, I've always tried to lead with empathy. Um, I'll give you an example. I've, I've had a couple of folks who had kids, uh, one in particular who was a single dad himself. And I know from my experience as a single dad, if you're going into an office in Philly, for example, uh, and it's a forecast for snow. Uh, oh what, what, what's your first thought? When, when is the snow going to start? Are the trains going to be running? What time will daycare close? How can I maximize my time in the office and still be able to plan to be there if this happens and you're not fully present at work so i would always tell these guys and gals just take the snow out of the equation just work from home right mm. you're we're all adults i trust you and this way you can be more productive and do what you need to do and yeah. so yeah and that's just one example but there's a lot of subtleties that i picked up in terms of my own personal experiences and how i saw good and bad and, and what i wanted to do as a leader yeah. And ladies and gentlemen watching today, those of you who are people managers, we work harder from home. We're not doing 27 loads of laundry. There's no water cooler talk that gets you sidebarred and all of these other things that happen. So you're more productive, I think, sometimes from home. But we do have a question from my good old friend, Bob. 
I have worked with PE for years and supported a great deal of M&A. I'm interested in your thoughts about how to weigh a percentage of value to one, historical performance of the company, two, the future strategic opportunity, and three, the leadership team. Does your view differ from what you have seen in most PE? Yeah, great questions. Um, so I was trying to scribble down the notes to this multifaceted question here. Uh, let me let me start with historic performance for first in, in terms of business valuation. So historic performance is obviously important, uh, knowing where you've been and what a company's done. Uh, one of the measures that we use is EBITDA. Uh, it's a kind of a proxy for cash flow or profit. And uh, a company oftentimes will trade as a multiple of their historic EBITDA. So here's an example I want to just highlight. When you think about two companies that have had the exact same historic growth trajectory, EBITDA is identical company A, company B, but in company A, they've lost a customer and EBITDA next year is expected to be lower, downward, downward trend. Company B, they are still on full growth mode. Their trajectory is upwards. Based on historic performance, you might think that they're worth the exact same amount. But when you start to look into the future, you can start to see where that may fall apart. So while historic performance is one piece of the puzzle, uh, the strategic, I think he mentioned forward-looking, if, if your audience takes away nothing else today, Dr. James and Shannon, on valuation, it's that valuation is a forward-looking exercise, okay? It's not about the rearview mirror, it's about what's down the road. So it get a little bit wonky here. The present value of future benefits is, is really the value of a business. And there's a lot of underpinnings there, what the appropriate risk rate may be to bring back those future benefit streams, but it's the future value of the business in that forward-looking exercise that really is what drives the value. So we'll, we'll do both of those. We'll look at historic. We'll also look at the future, uh, and then we'll calibrate them and, and weight them as appropriate. And then there was one other piece to that. I think it was with regard to leadership. Yep, leadership. Yep. Yeah, so at the end of the day, leadership is what drives both historic performance and future performance. So in our world, when we're vetting projections, for example, we've got to understand uh, the veracity of management, the depth, uh, have they done it before? So what's their historic forecasting track record look like? Um, I think we've all seen what we call the hockey stick forecast, where a company's kind of been chugging along flat line, and then we're going to make a presentation to an investor, and uh, we're going to now show this big growth spurt, which looks like the, the hockey stick. Um, well, we're going to push back on that and ask a lot of questions about what's really underpinning that and challenge those assumptions. So for the, for the companies and for the leaders that have demonstrated the track record, um, it's certainly a, a, an easier path. Uh, it's a tougher sell for those that maybe haven't done it quite as well. And at the end of the day, there's this notion that it's, it's really the people that are going to be driving both the historic performance and the, the forward-looking performance. So having a, a good, solid management team, in my view, that really gets these things that we've been talking about that are people-centric uh, is, is kind of critical. Great question. Great question. Thank you, Shannon. Dave, I want to take it back to this, this book right here. I have I recognize that. a new ROI. First of all, before I ask the question, where can people get it? Yeah, thank you. It's available everywhere you'd get a book, whether you get it digitally, whether you buy it in a physical copy. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, literally everywhere. And uh, if you want to learn more about the backstory and other things, check out uh, newroi.com. Love it, love it. Before I ask the question, you signed my copy and you said, 
Hi, Dr. James. You're the key. You're the key. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, I'm impressed that you're able to read my writing. Um, I was a chicken in a former life, and most people cannot read my handwriting. So I must have been having a good day. <laughs> so if you if you look at the, the cover, um, and this is some uh, new art. There's an original cover that was less elegant, but uh, it was developed in-house, if you will. This was something that somebody else was kind enough to share with me. Uh, at the bottom of it, you can notice that there was a key there. And yes. the, the teeth of the key is represented by the images of people. Yes. And people really are the key to an organization's success. So when I wrote, you're the key, that's what I'm talking about. Not just for your organization, but for everything that you do and the people's lives that you touch. Thank you. Thank you. Let's dive into the book. Chapter three talks about grit. Grit. What's that about? <laughs> grit, grit's about um, stick-to-itiveness. It's about, um, there, there's been some studies that were done that it, it, it's not just enough that you have innate talent, but you've got to actually put that talent to work by practicing, right? Um, and you can see it in sports and you can see it in music. And I think that the Beatles were a classic example of performers and musicians that really had the grit and the resilience to practice their craft, to develop and, and hone their skills. Um, there's a lot of naturally talented athletes that never achieve great success because they don't put in the work. And, and that's where grit comes in. I love the titles of your chapters, really good stuff. Chapter five talks about the purple squirrel. <laughs> uh, you can't see it behind me, but I've got a couple little purple squirrels that my daughter made for me uh, over my shoulder behind me here. But uh, so when we think about um, hiring the, the right candidates, you know, the best and the brightest, one of the terms that is often heard is the unicorn, the, the unlikely uh, diamond in the rough. Well, there was another expression that I uncovered in, in thinking about how to characterize that kind of a hire. Uh, and it was the purple squirrel. You know, it's a fictitious creature that we're all trying to achieve. And um, that chapter talks about how, like my friend Dave Nass, for example, utilizes something called the predictive index that can help yeah. companies to, to really not only just vet employees, but it, as he says, map the, the genome of the organization by identifying top talent. And when you can identify what the skills and the qualities are that they possess, you can then literally extract the, the data to find folks that fit in that mindset and in that profile. Good. Another chapter that really, really moved me, and I want you to talk more about it, it's between happiness and success, the juxtaposition of the two, um, happiness or success, which comes first? I believe that was chapter seven. Yeah, I was inspired by something that uh, Sean Acor had done, and, and he had written a book, um, I think it was called The Happiness Factor, and uh, he uh, basically had done this long study to determine the answer to that question, which comes first. I think um, when you ask a lot of people, um, they get it backwards, and, and I think he busted a lot of myths in that, and um, the idea basically is that you can be successful, but it, it starts with your mindset. You've got to find find the joy, seek the happiness. There are ways to do that. And by shifting your perspective, success comes. It's not the other way around. And that really was a lot of aha for me and a lot of aha for a lot of other folks too. But in weaving it into the book, some of the interesting things that I found, there's a lot of statistics around the impact of happiness on productivity. 
and happiness and employee engagement, I think, are, are somewhat joined at the hip. And you get similar benefits by having a happy workforce, right? A happy workforce is more productive and more productive workforce is typically more engaged. That more engaged workforce is going to drive the innovation and the discretionary effort. So it's all connected there. And uh, that's what that's what inspired that chapter. There was one more I, I, I jotted down, and that was chapter 13, the labor team. One more time. Chapter 13 had to do with flavor, flavor. Let me go to it real quick. No, I jotted it down. Uh, oh, uh, you mentioned it earlier, the flavor and the Kool-Aid, uh, Kool yes. What flavor oh, is your corporate Kool-Aid? My lemon in there. <laughs> yeah, so that's a chapter on the idea of aligning uh, your corporate brand and your corporate culture. And yes. again, the analogy is, it, everybody wakes up in the morning with their own persona uh, then they go to work and they show up and they have to basically change their persona to conform to the organizational norms of, of who that organization is and what that organization represents while still maintaining authenticity i'll add sure. um, but the idea is you may have somebody who's a real extrovert um, and now they walk into an accounting office for instance which is a much more refined uh, precise organizational kind of a feel and vibe to it. So imagine they, they take a, a sip of the metaphorical corporate Kool-Aid and they go from this extrovert into this mode of, you know, what a reserved person who has attention to detail is supposed to look and behave like. But the interesting thing is that um, in my work with um, the folks at BCAT, like Al Sini, who is the founder uh, of this brand and culture alignment toolkit, that there are a lot of disconnects. So there are a, not surprisingly, a lot of organizations aren't clear in articulating what, what their corporate brand is, what their mission is, but just little subtleties. Like, for example, he was telling me some stories about interdepartmental subtleties. So take a, take a theme park, for example, right? So you would think that the, the brand of a theme park is all about fun, the experience, right? The consumer joy. But now imagine that you're an engineer working on a roller coaster inside that theme park your mindset, how you perceive the organization from your lens is, this is all about safety. And coming at the organization from two different lenses doesn't allow the workforce and, and the business to really optimize what they're trying to achieve. So in this case, they actually took the engineers out into the theme park and let them be reminded by seeing the joy in the family's eyes and, and, and hearing the conversations with the kids and remembering that while they have a very serious part to play with regard to the safety, the big mission, the organizational brand is really around the fun aspect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dave, when I first, when you first gave me a copy of your book, and I saw Return on Individual, I, oh man, that's different, that's new. I never considered it that way. Most people have the same reaction and or how have your clients, for the most part, received the book, the information that's inside? Yeah, I think there's a lot of folks who really get it and innately feel that way. And I, I think for a lot of them, maybe they just haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about it. You know, they're, they're involved in their day to day. Um, you know, as a leader, they're, they're inundated and just bombarded with different stimuli and things they're supposed to do and say and behave. And uh, there, there's just a lot. But when, when we talk about the book and when they, as you say, receive the book, 
they've all been uh, super receptive to the idea. I can tell you that there were some clients who chose to do business with me just because of the book, um, even though that I may not have been able to add any value regarding, you know, their human capital per se, but just because philosophically we align, right? And to quote Simon Sinek, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And their why, my why lined up and uh, and that, that's how that goes. But uh, yeah, it's been very well received. Even in my profession, uh, I've got um, one of the big names in the valuation community who helped me in, in validating my thesis early on in the book, which lent some credibility to it from that perspective. Um, We've brought the new ROI construct to the valuation community in, in seminars, I'm doing some educational work now that uh, is in development for CFOs. Uh, the SEC just recently changed its requirements around human capital disclosure. So this is a, a real issue that I, I think we're still in the nascent stages, but it, it's gaining so much momentum. And uh, my hope is it's just going to continue to move forward. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Speaking of momentum, I see that nice brown leather seat chair you're sitting in. I want you to buckle up. You're now uh -oh. in the hot seat. You're in the uh -oh. hot seat. I'm going to ask you a series of, or give you a series of words, one after the other. I just want one word answers. When I share the word, what comes to mind in one word? All set? Oh, man. Here we go. Here we go. Warn <laughs> me about this, you know? <laughs> First word, valuation. Valuation, it's more than numbers. Sorry, that's not one word. Yeah, people, there you go. People, critical. Trust. Imperative. Pandemic. Insightful. 2020. Shannon said I can't use a naughty bit. I was gonna say cluster something, but... Um... <laughs> 2020, Groundhog Day. <laughs> the future. Right. Finances. Optimistic. Financial mistakes. Avoidable. Education. Mission critical. That's hyphenated, that's not two words. <laughs> Resiliency. Re Resiliency, yes. Um, important corporate culture the key to success and again i'm violating your one word policy i apologize <laughs> but i'm, I'm barely trainable <laughs> and you are now off the hot seat and we're going to bring in shannon peck what's happening shannon what's happening in the chat room shannon thanks for coming oh. back i'm in a flop sweat from that oh you know what know what i love because dr james you know what i love about that is in your, and I'm getting actually a little choked up, which I don't even know why. Your one word answers made me feel your heart. And because I have spent a career on employee experience and engagement. And will you dispel, dispel the myth for all those out there that it doesn't cost a lot of money to appreciate your people? It really doesn't. We, like we said at the top of the program, it's as simple as just acknowledging them with a, with a thank you. Um, every day, every week, at least make a note call your team and just say thanks for what they did. It, it really, it, it's, it's inexpensive. Uh, it, it shows that you recognize them. It, it shows a different side of you as a leader that maybe you actually care, maybe you notice, but look at the end of the day, we're all humans and yeah. we all want to, we all want to know that we're, we're valued and appreciated and any kind of recognition, it doesn't have to be monetary. Yeah. And I, and I know there's, there's been studies and I don't have the data at my fingertips, but I, I know that uh, people, 
as you mentioned, they, they don't leave a company, they leave their boss most of the time, but people will stay for less to be in an environment where the culture is good. They'll, they'll, they'll pass on a salary bump to stay in a good environment. I agree. So Dr. James, I just have one last question for Dave. I know we're, we're gonna be landing the ship, to the, uh, landing the plane soon, but so clearly there is a man behind your numbers. So tell us, what don't we know just by looking at you? What wouldn't we know just face value? Tell us, what do we know? We don't, what don't we know, right? You ran with the bulls in Spain, right? You, you know, you climbed Mount Everest. Something about you we won't know just by looking at you, Dave. No, you probably never know that I'm the uh, commissioner of my fantasy football league for the last 30 years. <laughs> and, and you probably wouldn't know that I've only won two championships. <laughs> Although if you ask anybody in my league, they'd be happy to tell you. They, uh, they bust my chops about that pretty much every moment. Yeah. No, it's, it's something else that you, you and I have in common, that whole fantasy football <sighs> experience. Thank you, Shannon. Dave? You are a quote machine. One is that I read was you can't you can't imagine what you can't measure. Speak to that a little bit. You can't imagine what you can't measure. Wow, did I say that? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I don't remember when I did that one, but uh, I, I know that you you can't measure what you or you can't manage what you can't measure. Um, and that, that's where the whole thing starts around this idea of, of new ROI and, and, and trying to put quantitative measures around some of these things that we intrinsically know and feel. Right, right. There's another one that I'm going to ask you to speak to. And actually, we're going to show it on the slide. It, it talks about, you say, the value uh, of a business is a function of how well the financial capital and the intellectual capital are managed by the human capital. You better get the human capital part right. Talk to us. Yeah, so the funny story behind that, but yeah, that that's that's had a lot of resonance. So, the the very first speaking engagement that um, I was going to be doing around this new ROI it was a, a panel we were doing at the Union League, and uh, I was going to be moderating with some of my new ROI collaborators as panelists and. I wanted to try to find a, a, a way to end the program with something that wasn't the cliche, so are there any questions, right? And I was kicking around in my head. And as you know, as I told you when we went on my show, I'm never really sure what's going to come out of my mouth. So I didn't have anything fully scripted, but those are the words that came out of my mouth that night. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, wow, this is this is gold. Because that really what it is, that, that summarizes the book very succinctly, um, wrote it down. And interestingly enough, it's been shared and tweeted and posted literally around the world. Uh, it's been translated in different languages. Uh, people have posted it as the banner on their, on their websites. I've had somebody recently who used that quote as the entire summary of her LinkedIn profile. Uh, just, just mind blowing, but it, it's, it really speaks to the resonance. And I, I hope the simplicity of the message, even though it's a mouthful. How has the pandemic impacted your business professionally, what you do, what leaders are saying or doing or thinking, has there been an impact this year? Yeah, of course. I mean, and especially in the early stages, and this is just my own perspective, but in, in the early days of COVID, um, my sense now looking back on it was that folks who were lucky enough to work from home, of which I'm one, um, 
kind of had this view that, well, this is only going to be a two or three week thing. So we're going to enjoy the idea of being home with the kids and the dogs and so forth. Um, and then summer started to unfold. But I, I think as we've gone through uh, this, this lengthy process, once the end of summer and Labor Day started to come into to vision, I think people started to realize that this is a new normal and we really don't know when we're going to come out of this and be back to what the old ways were. So we've got to get real and uh, business and life must move on. So we've been really fortunate. I think that uh, as our business has gone, um, we've been really lucky. We've been, we've been very, very busy and I've been very lucky that I can work from home and, and do what I need to do from here. How has your narrative changed when you approach it and share your, your thoughts and guidance about the future with your clients? So my narrative, I think, is, is the same, uh, but I think there's some subtleties and some nuances that, that I've learned in COVID. And um, we're all dealing with stuff. Um, it, it, we're, we all have some stuff going on and everybody's putting on a brave face and we're all acting like it's business as usual. But look, there are folks who are not able to work from home. Like I said, I'm one of the lucky ones. I can. And you know, like I said, I, I'm living, it, it feels like Groundhog Day a lot of times. It's the same day over and over again. But I'm lucky, but there are others who aren't quite as fortunate. And um, maybe their family members are in the hospital. Maybe they've lost a loved one to, to COVID or some other disease. I know since, since the lockdown, I've been to um, a Zoom wedding, a Zoom funeral, a Zoom bar mitzvah, uh, all these things that normally we would attend. And I mean, these are major life changes. You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, what, what are we doing? Um, the options and the things that we used to take for granted aren't there anymore. So there's, when you talk about being authentic and, and showing appreciation now more than ever, because your, your team is going to remember how you treated them and how you behave during these times. And interestingly, I hear stories from folks, uh, friends in, in other spaces where uh, maybe their leadership teams were apprehensive about this whole work from home thing because they needed to keep eyes on their people because they couldn't trust them. Well, they learn to trust and, and guess what? Like Shannon said, people do work harder from home and they're starting to become okay with some of these things that maybe they thought were originally taboo. But I, I do think it's important to just check in on your people. Uh, as I wrote about to check in to check in, you know, if you're working with a teammate, give them a call not to ask them for the next assignment or what the status is on something, but just how's it going? Just be real because we're all dealing with stuff. We certainly are. Well, we know that you are an evaluation whisperer, not expert whisperer. You also do your own TV show, RVN TV, behind the numbers. We know that you work with a lot of clients and individuals, CFOs. What's next? As you wind down the rest of this year, what's in the offing for Dave Bookbinder, the book? Just where do you see yourself going? What's next? Yeah, more of the same, and I'm excited about it because what's happening is um, there is momentum around this idea that I, I call the new ROI construct, but I'm not the only one that talks about it. I may be one of the few in, in my space, but there's a lot of folks who talk about this, and, and the folks in the HR world, for example, have said that what differentiates me maybe is that I'm a finance guy talking about, for some, a topic that was largely perceived to be HR, but when you read the book, you'll understand it's not just an HR thing. It's not just a finance thing. It, it, it really is a, a management thing, a leadership thing, an accounting thing, a valuation thing, uh, a people thing. So there's a lot more to it. And um, CFOs are 
gaining more responsibility in the area of human capital and, and human resource management. And like I said, we're, we're doing some work with CFO University and the Enterprise Engagement Alliance to put together some materials for chief financial officers to help them understand the return on individuals. Um, a couple of my colleagues and I are doing a webinar mid-month uh, through the Accountant Lawyer Alliance on this entire COP topic. In fact, um, the two guys that I mentioned are going to be there with me, Dave Nast and Alcini. So if you want to learn more about the predictive index or the brand and culture alignment toolkit, definitely want to check that out. So a lot of good things on the horizon. I, I just continue to see more momentum now that the SEC has finally bought into this idea and uh, mandating that companies at least start to disclose. We're not, we're not there yet, but we're certainly on the right path. Good stuff. And, and Dave, if you've seen the show, you know at this juncture, we move to the mini, M-I-N-I, -I, the mini keynote. I'm a speaker. I speak all the time. And based on my research, I see that you're a speaker too. So we asked our guests to give us 30 seconds, their best 30 second keynote to look into the camera and share your thoughts, your words, your call to action. What do you have for those of us who are watching or who will be watching on YouTube and other social media outlets? 30 second, Dave Bookbinder, keynote, mic check, mic check, mic check, you have the mic. Yeah, I would say that, look, the, the book covers a lot of good territory for, for folks as a kind of a roadmap and a playbook for doing things and, and why it, it matters. But from the heart, what really matters is that you take away the idea that these things are doable. You, you can implement change in an organization and create a great corporate culture. It's about putting your people first. And believe me when I tell you that when you do that, you will get the benefit. You will get the discretionary effort. You will get the engagement. You will create an environment where people will want to work for you. They'll want to stay there and they're going to want to do great things. They'll buy into your mission and they will blow your mind with increases in sales, profits, safety, you name it, every statistic that we use to measure. Mm, mic drop. Shannon, what you think? What you think? I love it. I love everything that you've had to share. I love that you cannot judge a book by its cover. Um, and those who have had an opportunity to work for you in the past, work for you now, and will work for you in the future, they definitely are getting more than meets the eye. You are more than a numbers guy. And I thank you for sharing your heart today and your knowledge, your experience, and most of all, for being a voice of the people. Thanks so much. I appreciate your kind words. And thank you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun. Dave, wow. Wow, good stuff, informed stuff, information that we can use immediately as individual contributors, as well as leaders and CEOs and folks who wanna see the needle move. So thank you for what you brought to the show. For those of you who are watching, we told you, we told you another informational, transformational show. We talked about what you can do professionally as well as personally, valuation, the new ROI, where are you now? Where are you going? Finances, people. Let me say it again, people. Hopefully you, you gained, you learned, you, you, you uncovered some new thoughts, new suggestions, new tips, things that you can use immediately, tools you can use immediately. We'll see you back here next week. This will be on YouTube tomorrow. Check out our YouTube page, Dr. James Smith Jr. We always want to be there. 
Lastly, don't forget, you've just been gympacted. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.